0: Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. At the end of the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, whose women you have worked," is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the green pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men whether rich or poor and now my daughter don't be afraid i will do for you all you ask all the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character this is the word of the lord
1: good morning everyone can you hear me welcome welcome to city church we're in a series on the Book of Roots. We are continuing our series on the Book of Roots, and we've been exploring how God is at work in the ordinary circumstances of our lives, and we've been looking at the story of the Book of Roots, and while tracing the story of Roots, we've been looking at the ordinary issues that came up in the life of the characters that also come up in our own lives. And so, we've talked about emigration or japa, we've talked about friendship, we've talked about work. And today we are going to be talking about relationships, romantic relationships. (laughs) And when we say ordinary circumstances and romance in the same breath, people are not always happy with that. Because the last thing we want is for our love story to be described as ordinary. We want the stuff that fairy tales are made of. We want a love story that is giving goals. We want the story that people will listen and say, those two famous words, God, when. But Sometimes romance doesn't work like that. The story we are going to look at did not work like that. It's not an ideal love story. Most women will not want to be the person to propose to a man. It's a bit unusual. But despite that, it has a lot to teach us today. Because as we'll see from the passage, what matters for a flourishing relationship, what matters the most is not how cute the story is, but the principles that it is built on. So I'm going to look at Ruth chapter 3 from verse 1 all the way to verse 11. But before we do that, let us, let us pray. Lord, we know that you are here. We ask that you will speak to us today. We ask that you will break the yokes and lift the heavy burdens. Jesus, we call unto you, you are full of compassion and unbounded love. We ask that you will visit us with your salvation and enter every trembling heart. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So a brief recap of what has been going on in the passage. We've been following the story of a Jewish woman named Naomi who relocated from Israel to Moab with her family because of economic hardship. While she's there, her husband and her two sons die and eventually she comes back to Israel at the beginning of the harvest with one of her daughter, daughter's in-law called Ruth. But by this time they are destitute. They have no land, they have no money, and they have no children. And so Ruth decides, let me go out and glean because it's the harvest season. Gleaning was a practice in the Old Testament that God instituted that, that provided for the poor. So if you were poor, God commanded that the rich people who had um, land and fields should not harvest everything, but well, leave, leave some for the poor, and so poor people went to try and get something to eat. So Ruth goes to do this, but as it happens, she happens to go to the field of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz happens to be a kinsman of Naomi, which means that he's an eligible spouse, he's a potential spouse for Ruth. And they, they kind of hit it off, um, Boaz provides for Ruth, he tells her to glean in his field throughout the harvest season. Well, the harvest is about to finish, but nothing has happened between Ruth and Boaz, despite all the vibing. And so, Naomi decides that she's going to do something about it. And we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, I'm reading from the ESV, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And verse 1 is such a beautiful verse. I, I, I really like it because throughout the book, we've seen pictures of loving kindness. Ruth displays this in chapter 1 to Naomi when she says, I will go where you go. I will leave where you go. Essentially, I will cut a grenade for you. Boaz displays this in chapter 2 when he's kind to Ruth and shows her favor. But we've never really seen Naomi showing this kind of behavior. Naomi seems to be a bit, and I don't use the word selfish, but she seems to be a bit inward focused. And to be fair, sometimes that's what happens when life has shown you Shege. (laughs) Tommy, last week, Tommy the Tiny, showed us (laughs) that... (laughs) 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 That... (laughs) (laughs) I blame it D (laughs) F (laughs) U. Tell me, the tiny showed us that he showed us last week that despite Ruth's declaration of faithfulness, when Naomi returns to um, Israel, she says God has brought me back empty, essentially saying that Ruth was it implied that Ruth was worth less than nothing. See another example at the beginning of chapter two. We don't have the time to read it, but Ruth says Naomi tells Naomi, I want to go and glean. Naomi just says no wahala. It's at the end, it's not until the end of the chapter, Naomi actually mentions that ah, when you go out, though, you could be molested. And if I were to, I'd be like, wow, don't you think that was essential information for me to know at the beginning of the chapter? Well, eventually, we begin to see Naomi. She's beginning to, in chapter 3, she's beginning to look outwards. She's beginning to show concern for Ruth. And here's the best part. There are reasons that a marriage between Ruth and Boaz will benefit Naomi. Maybe they'll be able to raise an heir for her husband, Elimelech. Elimelech, they could get her land back. But Naomi's primary motivation is in verse 1. It says, I want to seek rest for Naomi, for Ruth. Who could I have been responsible for this? How is Naomi suddenly becoming so less of someone who complains about her circumstances and more of someone who is now caring for others? I think it's the love of Ruth that made the difference. It's the same story we've heard over and over. It's a tale as old as time. Beauty and the beast, the princess and the frog. Love transforms people. And so Naomi, being transformed by the, root of, by the love of Ruth, says, I want to do something. I want to find rest for Ruth. So in verse 2, she says, It's not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I want to sound a note of caution here. This story is about how Ruth got a husband, not a template for how anybody... (laughs) Can get his spouse and unfortunately how this passage is often applied is that people are told actually mostly single women are told that if you want a short sure banker way to get married if you want to move from god when to see what the lord has done <laughs> there are three things you can see in this passage three a's you can see in this passage be attractive be available and be assertive we see be attractive in verse three which was asked to take a bath change her clothes use perfume, so they say, you have to package. Come buy perfume, tell yourself perfume, call him. <laughs> you have to be available. To so she went to the treasury floor and was laid at his feet. And so they said, this is the famous part about strategically positioning yourself. They say, be in his space. Laugh at his jokes. <laughs> Start playing fantasy Premier League. Yeah. Ask him what he learned in service. And the more you're in this space, then things will begin to happen. And finally, if that doesn't work, you may have to be assertive. This was very rude, short-haired short. But if you have done the first two well, it will not come to this. <laughs> and if it comes to this, you'll be guaranteed success. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about this advice. But the problem that is often presented as a recipe. If you do this correctly, you'll be guaranteed, guaranteed the same results. But we know that it doesn't always work. More than that, the recipe view is taking passages of the Bible that are descriptive and making them prescriptive. They're taking narrative portions of the Bible that just tell you this is what happened and making them normative that this is what ought to happen. But despite the story not being a recipe, it's still a very helpful passage because there are quite a number of principles that we see all over the Bible for flourishing relationships that show up at at one point or the other in this story. And so we're going to look at just three of them. So now we're not looking at three A's, but we're going to look at three C's. (laughs) Community, chastity, and character. The first one, community. Let me say something that was not controversial until fairly recently. courtship is a community project. We see in verse 2, Naomi initiating the move to look for a spouse for roots. Also, not just that, in, in verse 11, we'll get to that. Boaz says he has gotten feedback about Ruth from other people. And for many of us, OK, we find it hard to, why will people know, why do people want to put their mouth in what I'm doing? There's something called an urban urban legend. It's a story that's often untrue, but everybody seems to know the story. But nobody quite knows exactly where it came from. In Nigeria, we have quite a number of them. The first one I'll talk about is the story of Lady Koykoi, who was a ghost that haunted every university secondary school in Nigeria. All 104 of them. As in, her itinerary must have been mad. Everybody knows about it. The other one is the famous football match between Nigeria and India. And depending on where he grew up, he ended 101, 99, 100, 0, but the ball was turning into fire, turning into lion, dividing into three. When the Nigerians want to shoot the ball, it's a turn to stone. And everybody knows this story. We don't know where he came from. But the one I think that concerns us today is this. Single people should choose a spouse on their own. And people find it hard to, believe, to, to accept this. We struggle with this. Why should people have a say in what I do? I'm the person in the relationship. But when we look closely, there are a number of things wrong with this view. The first one is simply that it just doesn't go, it go, it doesn't go with the way that life, is, life works. It goes against the grain of how life works. Think about it, for every other thing, virtually every other thing, we learn by learning from more experienced people. But this one, we just feel like it's an exception. You have not been married before. All your previous relationships are failed. <laughs> but you just feel like, I know what I'm doing. we <laughs> be saying, oh, I've dated so many people that by now I've gathered experience. <laughs> but the fact that you know 10 wrong answers to two plus two does not mean that you know the right one. <laughs> the second thing is that sometimes we can be so involved in a situation that it's very hard to see straight. You'll be seeing a red flag. It will, in fact, it will be like sirens. We're blinking at you. But you'll be explaining it away. You have been dating for months. You have not met any of their friends, not any of their family, but it's because they're a private person. The worst I've heard is a, is a, is, was a lady that her boyfriend put a knife to her neck and she said he did it to, for me to demonstrate how much he, I trust him. <laughs> you know why you cannot see? <laughs> you know why you cannot see these red flags? Okay. It's because distance is necessary for perspective. And this is why our relationships need the input of community. It's precisely because they are somewhat distanced from the relationship that they are able to give us, often, objective feedback. The aim of dating is not just a time for vibes or a time to save up for your wedding. It's actually to ascertain whether you guys are a good fit for marriage. And doesn't it make sense to take advantage of all the great inputs that you can possibly get? And so I want to challenge you, if you're dating someone, please, Talk to older, more wiser, older, wiser, more mature people and invite them into your relationship. If you're planning working towards marriage and you're not considering it, please talk to one of the leaders and plan to do marriage counseling. It's going to help you. Well, the input of the community does not end when you say, I do. Marriage itself is a community project. For me personally, when I hear people say, oh, the first years of my marriage were hell. I wanted to leave the marriage. Next thing that comes to my mind is, were you doing it alone? This is a hill I'm willing to die on. The most demonic, the most demonic advice about marriage, I say this all the time, I don't use those words lightly. The most demonic advice about marriage I have ever heard is don't let a third party into your marriage. And what often happens is a situation that could have been nipped in the board. Will just degenerate and degenerate until there's a complete breakdown. And here's a proverb I heard from D.F. over the weekend. The matter that you don't want the fathers to hear, <laughs> you will call them to settle it. <laughs> Eventually, not only will the third parties hear about it, sixth and seventh and eighth parties will hear about it. But often people give the pushback, oh, bad advice can spoil your marriage. Yes, that's true, but the solution is not to throw away the baby with the bathwater. Go and get good advice. I don't think if you talk to any of the leaders here, they will give you bad advice. But not just in dating or marriage. Beyond that, we need to be allowing other mature people to speak into our lives. The Bible actually describes this as the normative way that the church should function. In the book of Titus, older women are commanded to teach the younger women how to live like the people of God. And I think it applies to men as well. And if you're an older person, I want to appeal to you, please, can you consider getting more involved in the life of the younger people? I know that in Lagos, we are always afraid that lean on me will turn to press me die. But but, but think of it as an opportunity to reciprocate the love that you have received from Christ. We can extend ourselves like Naomi did, like we saw, like Naomi did, to help Ruth. And I just want to say that, they will not be happy that I say this, but there are people in church that are doing a great job like this, people like DF and DJ, they are incredibly busy, but they spend so much time with the young men of this church, advising them, trying to help them. (laughs) It's a great thing, it's worthy of emulation. But that's just one side of the equation. There's something very important that we see in verse 5. It says, and she replied, all that you say, I will do. Ruth is submitting to Naomi's wisdom on this issue. You cannot benefit from the wisdom of older people if you're not teachable. If you're not willing to honor their wisdom, if you're not willing to receive from them. That's why when, before they talk one, you've said five. You know everything. When they tell you, you say, oh, I know. You did not know it. Sometimes we stay away from community because we don't want to hear advice that goes against what we've already decided in our mind that we want to do. And if that's your frame of mind, even the wisdom of Solomon will not help you. Because it's very hard to wake up somebody that's pretending to be asleep. Ruth says, all that you say I will do. And she uses Naomi's advice as a framework to do the next things that she did. And here we see the next principle for a flourishing relationship. Verse 6. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. (laughs) And in some versions it is translated as spread the corner of your garment over me. And if you're asking yourself what on earth is going on here, (laughs) you're asking that you're not the only one. What everybody is clear on is that Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz. But the author wraps this passage in so much in that This is actually a very hotly debated passage. Because the words fit... Uncover and lay—they have other meanings in the Bible that are somewhat irated. I cannot talk about them now. <laughs> but what we can agree for sure is that, regardless of where what, where you stand on the meaning of feet, or is it feet, or is it feet, is <laughs> that it's, it's an incredibly tempting situation. Imagine it was his Bible says he had drunk; he was his heart was merry, so he was possibly a bit tipsy. He's in the middle of, in, of the night. And a a lady that you have been vibing essentially uncovers your feet. (laughs) What do you do? At the risk of spoiling the story, I can say that nothing happens between Boaz and Ruth that night. That's what we see in the Bible. Boaz insisted on doing the right thing, despite nobody's looking, nobody looking. Naomi's plan would have been incredibly risky and reckless, but for the character of Boaz. Imagine if it were someone like Samson. (laughs) (laughs) Or David. (laughs) David, David! David, it was not in the night, in broad daylight. The woman was not near him, she was far. say, bring her, bring her, bring her. <laughs> say, if somebody's wife, you say even wouldn't do. <laughs> mm. Imagine if it were you. My <laughs> think the character of Boaz shines so brightly here. Remember, this is the time of the judges where people do whatever it is they like. In fact, the story of, and we see at the, towards the end of Judges that a woman was pretty much raped to death, happened just a few months away from Bethlehem. But Boaz does not live down to his culture's expectation. And we can see a clue why he's able to do this. In almost every conversation we meet Boaz before now, Boaz is always bringing up the Lord. He tells his workers, the Lord be with you. He tells Ruth, the Lord repair you for what you have done. In this passage, he's also going to bring up God again. I think that Boaz lives his life as if God were an ever-present reality. He's is what is called living Deo, before the face of God. I don't think Boaz in this situation was thinking, ah, nobody's here. Because as far as he was concerned, God was there. It's exactly how Joseph is able to resist Potiphar's wife. Remember what he said. He said, how can I do this great wickedness, not against Potiphar, but against God. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to sexual purity in our relationships. However, what some of us are doing is, "Ah, if I cannot eat the suya, I might as well, I can at least lick the pepe. What oh, God is actually telling us is this. But among, <laughs> well, among you, there must not even be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality because these are improper for God's people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. For us, most of the wiser thing, of course, is not going to be in this kind of situation in the first place. As the proverb I like, like so much, it says, The ocean does not swallow the person whose leg does not come into contact with it. We keep putting ourselves in situations where sexual sin is inevitable, and they will not be shocked when it happens. Why are you surprised? And this is just, isn't just for married, unmarried people, but for married people as well. Here's a simple piece of advice. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself. For people that are dating, there's nothing that you need to do while you're not married that you need to do, that you cannot do in the public view. And I often tell people that I know that dating. if you need a place to hang out, come to my house. And I think married people need to be opening their homes as well. Remember, this is part of what it means for courtship to be a community affair. Guys, let's help ourselves. Don't say, ah, Ruth and Boaz were in the middle of the night on the threshing floor and nothing happened. <laughs> so I'll be okay. Spoiler alert, <laughs> you will not be okay. But the third thing that we see in this passage is character. Verse 10, it says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. And I always roll my eyes here. I say, why are you calling her your daughter, bro? She saying, you like her. She has already told you I want to marry you. You're still calling her my daughter. What is going on boys? You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all you ask all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Mrs. Abouaz does not judge Ruth based on who she used to be, but on who she is now and who she is becoming. And this is striking because Ruth is a Moabite. And to Jews hearing the story, there is something that immediately comes to their mind when they hear Moabites. There was a stereotype associated with Moabites. The best way I can explain it. A good way to explain it is when you hear that a girl is dating a guy called Femi. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you see, manage it like that. I saw. I saw it tweeted. If they, if you guys if if, you, if people call him Femi, you may be able to manage it. If they call him Femo, ah. <laughs> <laughs> but if they call him Femo Lala, la, la. <laughs> Ronald, <laughs> increase your speed. The Moabites were the Femis of the ancient world. (laughs) They had a bit of reputation, and that's putting it mildly. How does the nation of Moab start? They're actually descended from Lot, Abraham's nephew. And um, in Genesis 19, God has overthrown Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot and his daughters are in a cave. And his daughters, they get their father drunk. And sleep with him. And the children of those union are the Moabites and the, the ancestors of the Moabites and the Ammonites. But that's not all. In the book of Numbers, Balak the king of Moab hires a prophet called Balaam to curse the people of God. And it doesn't work. So what the strategy they come up with is to send babes to the camp of Israel to to mingle with the men and of course they start doing stuff. And so God punished the Israelites. So because of this example, this episode, God actually gave a law in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And no Ammonites or Moabites or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Yet Boaz looks at this woman and does not refer to her as Ruth the Moabites, but as a worthy woman. In other words, he's saying, what is paramount to me? What shines the most to me? Is not your past, it's not your background or your present character. And so many times when it comes to choosing our spouse, we judge people's past, we judge people's background and automatically disqualify them based on that. Oh, they come from a broken home. Cancel. It's sad to say this, but some people till now, Christians, still say, oh, they are not from my tribe or from the right tribe. And so I'm not interested. Other people will say, if he or she, because I've seen these two examples, if he or she is not purely virgin, I'm not interested. But of course, he that comes to equity must come with clean hands, and you know, everybody's not. So they say, I have a body count cut off <laughs> above this number. Council. And I was talking to someone about it, we we're going back and forth about it, and the guy said, See, I'm not saying that they should not have a past. Well, let that past not be past participle. <laughs> And yet, I recognize that sometimes because of our past experiences, there will be issues that we'll have to walk through. But when we judge people and counsel them based on their backgrounds or their past, at the core, what we are saying is this. You know what the Bible says about if any man be in Christ is a new creature? I don't believe the word of it. God says, Ruth is a worthy woman. What does a worthy woman look like? The Bible actually tells us Theologians have pointed out that the Hebrew Bible is not arranged the way that our English Bible is. In our Bible, Ruth comes after Judges. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes immediately after Proverbs. And so, when we see Ruth being described as a worthy woman, our minds should go to the worthy woman, is the same word, described in Proverbs chapter 31. A verse 10 says, A virtuous woman who can find her price is far above rubies. And the rest of the chapter goes on to eulogize her. Or even in this passage, we see Ruth display the traits of a worthy woman. In verse 10, Boaz talks about the last kindness of Ruth being greater than the first. What does he mean? The first kindness is Ruth leaving everything to stick with Naomi. But the second kindness is Ruth being interested in marrying a kinsman. Boaz is acknowledging that Ruth is going about her search for a husband in a way that will not exclude Naomi. Because if Ruth marries out of the clan, that's it for for Naomi in terms of extending the family name. And Ruth had tried for Naomi. She was within her rights to do this. But she's thinking about Naomi. How can I pursue my goals and still help Naomi at the same time? And this kindness, I think, is one of the most important things to look for when we are looking for a spouse. How do you know if someone is kind? It's simply how they treat other people, not how they treat you or how they treat other people, especially people that have nothing to gain, they have nothing to gain from. In the book of Genesis chapter 24, is actually the primary criterion that Abraham's servant uses when he's looking for a spouse for Isaac. He prays that the lady that agrees to fetch water for him and his camels will be the person that God has chosen. And it was not a random test. It was actually a quick check for kindness. Because it's only a kind person. Will choose to help a random stranger in those way, in that way. And camels love water. It's so important to marry a kind person. Because whoever you marry will eventually know you so well that they know exactly where to stick the knife in that will hurt you the most. And if that person is not kind, not only will they chuck that knife in, they will twist it. It's only a kind person when you have messed up that will not see you on the ground and kick you and say, I told you so. A person will say, hey, we can fix this. And I feel very strongly there are married people here that for a while your relationship has been devoid of kindness. Maybe you were kind before and you were taken for granted. So you said, never again. I think today God is calling you back to a life of kindness. Yes, the person does not deserve it. But God's Spirit can empower you to look beyond that and bear this fruit once again. But back to the story, there's something else that's interesting that we see in this passage. When we look at the story closely, there's a big, there's a discrepancy, actually a wide discrepancy between Boaz and Ruth in the things that we generally consider important. Boaz has status. Ruth does not. Boaz is a rich landowner. Ruth is a poor peasant. Peasant. Boaz is a son of the soil. She is a foreigner. But for him, her character is what is paramount. I want to ask us, are we basing our choices for a spouse on the person's character, on things that should be less important? Are we discounting otherwise godly people because we have prioritized the wrong criteria? Proverbs 31, the portrait of a worthy woman, just before the end, says this, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman and a man who fears the Lord will be praised. But some people may be saying, this is fine, but it doesn't really apply to me because I'm not in this season of life. Maybe I'm already married, and so I'm no longer looking for a spouse. Maybe, or maybe it's that I feel like my name has been deleted from the book of love. <laughs> so I don't see this ever, how I ever use this in real life. But I have good news for you. This story is about more than finding a spouse. Have you ever been in the middle of a couple's quarrel and it's always something small like toothpaste? And now realized realize after a while that this is about toothpaste, but it's also not about toothpaste at the same time. Sometimes there's a bigger story going on behind the immediate drama that is often easy to miss. Sometimes it can be so focused on the tree that we miss the forest. Let's look again. What else is going on in this passage? We see a clue in verse 1. Naomi wants to find rest for Ruth. And yes, she's speaking about marriage, but she seems to use the word in a way that is separate and a bit different from just marriage. See what she says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest In the home of another husband. You see, it was not the marriage that was the rest itself. It was a means to rest. It was something that leads to rest. Because you see, for the Jews, rest was a loaded word. It was not just relaxation. It was not just a home. It was to enter into the fulfillment of God's promise. To be in a place of flourishing and harmony. And I think this desire for rest is hardwired into every single one of us. We are all on a quest for flourishing, for satisfaction, for happiness. We are all looking for rest. And many of us can identify with Ruth in verse 7. She is at the threshing floor. it's is in the middle of the night. She has listened to Naomi. She has been told it's all on you. Wear your cloak, have a bath, and anoint yourself. She has done that. Mark where Boaz is. She has done that. Go and lie down and uncover his feet. She has also done that. And now, She's waiting. It's in the middle of the night. Time is going. She's saying, Boaz just needs to wake up. Boaz just needs to wake up. And then it will all be worth it. Sometimes it can feel like we are perpetually living in anticipation. If only I get married, then I will finally be happy. Maybe it's not marriage we are looking to, to give us rest. But if only I have X amount of money, I will finally be happy. If only I have kids, then I'll be happy. If only I can jack back from this country, then I will finally flourish. These things have become our boas, And we are looking to them and saying, like Ruth in verse 9, cover me with your wings. Cover me with the corner of your garments. Spread the corner of your garment over me. But for many of us, when we actually achieve these things, we find that it's still not enough. There's always something else that we feel like we have to get so if you are saying, oh, the problem is that I ended up marrying the wrong person or I have a bad job. No, that's not the issue. The best possible marriage, the best possible career, the best possible country will still not help us. The problem is that we are looking, for, we are looking to create things to satisfy the thirst of an eternal soul. Brothers and sisters, all our boises. the good things we desire and look to for rest will never ultimately satisfy us. Because they were intended to be signboards, not destinations. Our Boazes were not meant to be destinations, but signboards that point to Jesus, the fountain of living water, the source of eternal rest. He is the one that can truly satisfy us. He is the true and better Boaz. Because you see, while it was our roots in this passage to go out into the night to seek for Boaz to give her rest, Jesus is the one that takes the initiative and goes out into the night of God's judgment so he can bring rest to us. In the book of Ruth, he's appealing to birds, spread the corner of your garment over me, cover me with your cloak. But God, speaking in Ezekiel, says, later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, you did not choose me, you did not want me, but I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Like There's a big discrepancy between us and him. He is holy and we are sinful. He is loving. We are hateful. He is perfect and we are broken. But wonder of wonders, he still wants us somehow. Somehow he still wants us. And he gives up his life on the cross to make us his own. This is the offer of the gospel. That all who labor and are heavy laden can enter into his rest. It's a rest that is unchanging. It's a rest that is imperishable. It is a rest that is utterly satisfying because the rest that God offers is God himself. Yes, you are going to have doubts and fears. Sometimes we will forget, but we need to preach the gospel to our hearts over and over again. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel until we can sing with the hymn writer, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I am his and he is mine and he has brought me to his banqueting hall and his banner over me is love. When we grasp this, when we grasp this, when we grasp this, we begin to live out of our identity as people who are loved, secure and accepted. And so we are able to display this love by being a loving and serving community. We begin to see marriage and other good things not as ultimate fulfillment, but as gifts to enjoy to the glory of God. And even if marriage hasn't come or doesn't even come, maybe, we know that we have the real thing that marriage is only a signboard for. We know that we have the real thing that marriage points to, an eternal bridegroom that loves you and will never ever leave you or forsake you. Can we rise as we pray together?
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.